I ask you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and we are in the last chapter of Hebrews, so please turn to chapter 13. Before our children's questions, uh, just one humorous observation, so it seems to me whenever I come across a passage where I'm preaching on marriage, it turns out that my wife is not here or away or in nursery. So, Lori, if you're listening down there, love you, Lore. Uh, I don't know how that happens, but. So we are in Hebrews chapter 13, and our focus this evening is on verse 4. But I'd like to begin reading in verse 1, and so we'll follow down to verse 5, actually. Children, here are your questions. First, what was Adam? The answer is a lot simpler than you might think. What was Adam? And what was Eve? Two, does the Bible allow for men to marry men or women to marry women? Three, does what we do with our bodies matter to God? And four, should people act like they are married when they're not? Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. There ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Lord our God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you teach us all that we need to know about salvation, but also you teach us all that we need to know about how to live a holy life unto you. And Lord, we know that they're certainly not at all exclusive one from the other. And tonight as we come to your word and looking at this call to honor an institution that you have established, we pray that you would help us to honor it and to appreciate it more, to be very wise in the way that we consider things like marriage and our physical relationships. And so, Lord, we pray that you would minister to us tonight. As we come to you in the name of Jesus, speak to us through your word. Amen. Well, I thought maybe tonight it would be a stating the obvious kind of sermon to a Sunday evening gathering of God's people, that the topic of marriage and sexual purity would be something that was obvious. I certainly hope it is, uh, but we all need reminders regularly of the things that God has designed and the things that God commands. I will say that I can't be as maybe direct as I would be in, a, in an audience like ours, a congregation like ours, where, where we're mixed. There are many things about the topics I'm going to talk about that we could be a lot more direct on. I want to be sensitive to that. Uh, considering our gathering here tonight, but I want to make it very clear that, that God is very specific about things to do with marriage and physical relationships. 
Uh, the topic was enough of a concern for the author of Hebrews to address the issue of marriage and fidelity to a body of Christians. But they were under pressure, not only certainly from their own temptations and their own lusts, but from a culture around them that had a twisted view of what marriage and sexuality was all about. Certainly the issue is not always clear, rarely clear to the worldly-minded, but sometimes even the church can embrace things that are directly against what um, God has said about things like this, grossly distorting things. We see that today in many places. So uh, tonight we're going to look at marriage and physical relationships. Marriage was invented by God. It's a sacred union to be upheld by the church. It's a sacred union to be upheld by all Christians. It's something that God established. And, and no matter what direction the culture goes, the church needs to stay firm on the issues that are before us as more and more our own culture becomes perverted and doesn't think that biblical positions are legitimate and sometimes find them extremely offensive and even want to punish people for holding right views of marriage and sexual fidelity. Cultures and societies decay and sometimes even collapse when they when they disregard the things that God has told mankind to do about things like marriage and physical relationships, when they embrace uh, perversion. The church, when it embraces aberrations, brings disgrace upon itself, but also to the name of God, the name of Christ that the church bears. But individuals also do damage to themselves when they don't follow God's commands. They do damage not only to themselves, but they do damage to others. And so it's a very important, serious topic. And again, for Christians and the church above all, we need to, to not only maintain, but celebrate the sacred nature of marriage. The author is very concerned that the church might start to compromise on those things. In their day, there were some strange views going on. You find out that there's some sects, that believe that pure celibacy is the highest form of godliness. And so they're denying things like marriage altogether. It's better to just stay single and stay completely celibate. Uh, that was a problem then. Things don't change. We saw how that problem, so-called higher devotion from celibacy, we've seen how that has gone horribly awry in the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, where they instituted that, setting itself up for all kinds of twistedness. On the other side, and this was probably more common, you had all kinds of sexual perversion. Whole cultures sometimes immersed in this sensuality. And so here you have this church that's been called to faithfulness in God while the whole culture around them is, is going crazy. Now earlier in our passage, we were dealing with one kind of love, phileo love and Philadelphia we talked about last time, that brotherly love and that, that love for strangers and then love for suffering Christians. So that's one kind of love. Tonight we're looking at what has been called eros or marital kinds of love, romantic attraction, physical connectedness. Last week I mentioned that my observation is that in the 60s and 70s, uh, some of the movement there actually got part of this issue of love right. The brotherly love thing, they didn't have entirely wrong 
when they were trying to bring peace and stuff like that to our country. They might have gone about it the wrong way, but they didn't get it entirely wrong. But this one, this one, this definition of love went horribly awry in the 60s and the 70s and to a revolutionary, you might say, extent. But there's really nothing new under the sun. Uh, what's right and wrong with marriage hasn't changed from the beginning. And it, we can't say that our world is in a worse place now that way than it was back then because it's always been an issue and it always is. What, need, what may need to concern us is our own culture and our own country and what's going on here in the rapid way that we're embracing more and more twistedness. But let's begin with the positive. Let's begin with the positive thing about marriage. It was designed by God. And so we should honor it. It's, it's an institution created by God, and it's been that way from the beginning. If you want to follow along, I'm going to be looking at some different passages if you want to turn to them. If not, just listen. The first one is from the beginning, First uh, Genesis 1, verse 27. Some very familiar things to you, I'm sure. But again, remember, it's always good to be reminded of things that we already believe that are in God's word. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We'll stop there, jump over to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, this is, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That is the word of God. Jesus believed that. Jesus believed in a literal Adam and Eve, and he also believed in God's institution of marriage. This is what Jesus says when he's being challenged on divorce and on other things to do with marriage. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So here it's affirmed by Jesus. One man, one woman, and marriage is an institution from God. The nature of marriage is very important for us to understand the way God created it. Now what I'm about to say, what I'm about to say in some countries, country north of us in Canada, uh, would be offensive and possibly get me in trouble. What I'm going to say in some communities in our own nation would mark our church as something horrible and terrible. What I'm going to say may someday be illegal and found offensive hate speech 
in our own country. But I'm going to say it. And there's seven things about marriage, and I'm following an outline from our confession about marriage. First of all, the first two words I'm going to use are big words, but they're concepts that even children can understand. The first one is simply heterosexual. Marriage is only between a man and a woman. There's no other kind of marriage. God acknowledges just marriage between one man and one woman. Secondly, it's monogamous, only one at a time. Even when it's tolerated in the Old Testament, polygamy did not go well. And so while it was tolerated among God's Old Covenant people, the norm was not to be that way, and so marriage is to be between one man and one woman, heterosexual and monogamous, mutually beneficial. Some of the norms or some of the ideas in history in some places, I suppose even in our country, sometimes made it seem as though uh, it, marriage was for the man to have a serf of a wife or that the wife was to, this meek, you know, frail, helpless thing that needed this strong man to protect her and keep her. But the fact of the matter is they're to be mutual, mutually edifying, mutually strengthening, complementary to one another, and so mutually beneficial, not just for the advantage of one, but for the advantage of each other. And the real way to do marriage is for each other try to outserve the other. Next, as it was designed, it was designed for the propagation of mankind. That's the way that the people uh, are supposed to populate the earth. That was part of the way that, that, that's part of the reason marriage was designed. There's not always offspring, but that is the norm. That through the marriage union, there will be offspring. Uh, next, to prevent uncleanness, because anything outside of the marriage bonds that is sensual or sexual is not acceptable in the eyes of God. Confession is, uh, takes pains to mention that it's to be consensual. In other words, there shouldn't be arranged marriages. Nobody should be in a forced arranged marriages, but each person should be able to choose their spouse and decide uh, whether they really do want to marry that person or not. Uh, it's sort of a death to forced marriages. And then seventh, that it's a union by design. It's a relationship and I like this, this kind of term, putting these things together. It's an emotional, psychological, spiritual, and physical relationship that's meant just for marriage, that's very deep and intimate. That's true for all humanity. But for Christians, it's even more important. There's a higher significance. So... Believers should only marry in the Lord. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is something that I'm afraid many young Christians overlook. Kind of write it off and just say, well, I'm, we'll work it out. Even though they're not a believer and I am, I really love them. So um, we're going to work it out somehow. Maybe they'll get saved because... Uh, I'm such a good, strong Christian. I'm sad to say that usually it happens the other way around. They get pulled down away from their faith. But here's 2 Corinthians 6, 14. 
Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. And he goes on talking about how we'll be, uh, we'll be the temples of the Lord. He'll make his dwelling among us and walk among us. So Paul's not being dramatic. Those are some pretty stark differences between believers and unbelievers. He's not being dramatic. He's simply stating fact. Now, I want to qualify it. I know marriages between some believers and unbelievers that, frankly, put some Christian marriages to shame as far as the way that they get along and honor one another. But that has its limitations. There's not that, that deep spiritual union. There can't be. There are always complications and a disconnect. Uh, there are grievous implications when, when you think about eternal ramifications, about being united with somebody who's not going to share eternity with you. There's, there's so many things. Now, in those relationships, it's upon the Christian spouse to make sure that they shine with virtue and love and grace and grace in order to win over the unbeliever. Not badgering, certainly not being nasty, not pretending to be perfect, but, but being that sinner saved by grace who's trying to honor God both in the relationship with the Lord and with each other. And so for believers, they're to marry in the Lord, and it's for mutual edification. Paul gives us such a profound illustration of what this looks like. Turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. And I would say what we have in this passage is, is a twofold thing here. Um, it's a gospel message. It really is a gospel message because Paul is first talking about Jesus Christ's love for his church and his devotion to her, but it's also a reflection of a gospel marriage. So listen closely. Ephesians 5, beginning of verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What a glorious picture of marriage. What a great reminder of how much we ought to honor and respect marriage. It's to be preserved as far as possible. It's to be perfected, uh, perfected too, protected. It's to be protected. The problem is sin. Sin is always the problem. 
And so the author of Hebrews has to point out that the marriage bed has to be protected. You might have noticed that. It doesn't say just honor marriage, but the marriage bed has to be protected. So, so none of the activity that should only happen between husbands and wives should happen outside of marriage. And so the next part is he has to warn against sexual immorality. Sensual physical relationships are to be reserved for marriage. And sadly, man has defiled the institution of marriage and has abused physical relationships as well. And so it's a broken norm. Uh, we live in a world of perversity. And as I mentioned earlier, sometimes whole cities are immersed in this sensuality. I think we need to concern ourselves in our own country. That is, is so bizarrely schizophrenic when it comes to sexual issues. So twisted and distorted in so many different ways where, where one thing is offense to a gender and the next thing you know there's no gender. And it just gets crazier and crazier as you look at it. I mean, who would have ever imagined that children were being encouraged to choose their gender? Who would have ever imagined what goes on in some surgical rooms on young people? I mean, are you not aghast at these things? This whole idea of transgenderism and, and people morphing from one thing to another? With the blessing of the government? Sometimes being paid for by insurance, paid for by your and my taxes? Through the military and other places as well? Can you, can you begin to wrap your mind around where we are? I, I won't get illicit on this. I mean, explicit on this. I won't get explicit on this because it's so disturbing. But let the hearer understand. We are in a dreadful situation as a country. And if we think that this whole thing about our sexual identity doesn't matter to God, we're mistaken. A country, a nation that disregards completely the commands of God, even in the area of sexuality, is clearly placing itself under the judgment of God. And yet it's packaged for us in this, this way by, by the powers that be and by certain segments of society that this is nothing to be concerned about. It's a good thing. And you Christians in particular are so bigoted and so narrow-minded. How could you dare tell someone what marriage is about and what sexual purity is about? Well, like I said, there's nothing new under the sun, although I can't imagine that the culture the Hebrew church was in was as twisted even as ours. But they were dealing with the issue of sexual immorality. And the first thing he mentions is porneo, that broad sense of any kind of any kind of illicit sexual behavior outside of marriage. Now Jesus remember takes that even deeper and he says that even your imaginations or even even your heart and even your mind when it goes in those directions 
that are outside of the things that are ordained by him in marriage, that when they go unchecked, that's adultery. That's porneo. The next term he uses has specifically to do with marriage. And really the term is, let the marriage bed be honored, let it be unsoiled by sin. There's a lot of things that can destroy marriages. One thing that Jesus makes very clear, that if there's any clear reason for divorce, it is adultery. That's a sure way to destroy a marriage. It doesn't always destroy a marriage, but it certainly does deep damage. And Jesus says that's clearly a reason for divorce. There are other things, too. Our confession talks about the issue of of, of abandonment. I would suggest that issues of abuse also would be included. I think that the church, in some segments, has made a big mistake and telling spouses to stay in sometimes dangerously abusive marriages. I I think what's happening there is they're focusing on the letter of the law and taking that one thing that Jesus said and totally ignoring reasonable deductions from the rest of Scripture and becoming authoritative in a way that they ought not to be, not using their spiritual insight into things that Scripture teaches us about the way you deal with one another in the way that a husband and wife should deal with each other. At any rate, there are things that can destroy marriages, and one of them clearly is sexual immorality, specifically adultery. Finally, the author says that that sexual immorality has consequences. And he uses the word judgment. He uses the word judgment. Do want to look at just a few more passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 again. Here in verse 9. This issue of judgment is should be taken very seriously. There are a number of places. It seems to me that most often when there's a list of things that won't be allowed into the kingdom of God, sexual immorality seems to always be on those lists. And here's just one example. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, thankfully, you can say, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God. I'll come back to that part of it. But make no mistake, throughout Scripture, this idea of sexual immorality is cause for judgment. God doesn't take it lightly at all. And so we look at a society and we see that societies collapse when sexual immorality is rampant. And that's the judgment of God. We see that a church becomes corrupted and Scandals are are awry in churches. Sexual immorality. But now we have segments of the church that that encourage and ordain all kinds of things and bless all kinds of twisted things. And then there's the destruction of the family. These are all things that are judgment. And so there's this idea of temporal judgment that messes everything up in this life, but there's 
There's eternal judgment as well if there's not repentance. There are personal ramifications to sexual immorality. And some of those things are residual even after repentance. You see, because because physical union is so intimate, when that's broken or distorted, things get messed up. Here again, 1 Corinthians 6, now in 15, this whole section, the church of Corinth was a mess. Listen to what he says. This is verse 14. When God's rate raise up, the Lord will also raise us up by his power. Listen. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. For he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. But you see that there is, in fact, this, this thing in, in sexual union that is, is, is mental and emotional and psychological and spiritual as well as physical. So when that's broken and distorted, it has an impact on the individual that's involved. And that's a consequence, a personal consequence that comes. And so there, there are other temporal things, not only that sense of guilt that's bound to be there if it's not dealt with, but also uh, the impact that it has on others. Again, leading to divorce, shattering families, breaking hearts, causing confusion of young people who say, well, we're going to get married anyway, and then things fall apart and they've had this intimacy with someone that they'll, they'll never see again. It's going to have an impact personally on individuals. But back to the effect on others. It always affects others. Not to mention things like STDs happen and pregnancies happen and causing of abortion and all kinds of things. You see that there, there's all kinds of temporal problems, things that 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 are judgments involved in breaking God's commands regarding marriage and sexual activity. But there's also eternal judgment. And the lists that are given in Scripture often have to do with that. I won't turn to any more verses tonight, but if you were to look in Revelation 21 and 22, you'll see that the very same things I read from other passages that you'll read elsewhere as well have to do with standing before God in judgment. And again, sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, all kinds of sexual perversions are mentioned as things that will keep people out of the kingdom. But understand this, that there is grace. And there is grace for forgiveness. And if there is repentance, and repentance only comes through, through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
If there is repentance, there is restoration and forgiveness of sins. And there can even be healing of broken souls that have been deeply damaged by sexual immorality. But only Jesus can do it. And so, as Paul said, as some, some of you were that way, but now God has done a wonderful work in your life, and there can be the process of healing when there's genuine repentance and change. But that's the work of God. You see, things like that seem impossible to us. But as we read in different places in Scripture, what's impossible with man is possible with God. But it requires true repentance and the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I guess with all of that said, I just want to say to Covenant Church, we need to stand fast on the things that God has commanded. And one of them is the sanctity, the sacredness of marriage and the importance of upholding sexual morality in the church and in our lives. Because we live in a culture that's more and more becoming twisted and perverted, twisting marriage, twisting gender, twisting all kinds of things. We need to stand fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are God and we can trust in you and we believe what you tell us. And there are some things, Lord, maybe that we don't see clearly in Scripture. But there are other things that are so crystal clear, including your view of marriage and your view of sexuality. And Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in those things that you have provided and those things that are pleasing in your sight. And that as our culture more and more embraces perversity and will not tolerate those who hold fast to what you have said, we pray that we would stand fast. That no matter which direction our culture goes, even if some of our own families go off in some twisted direction, breaking our own hearts. Nonetheless, Lord, we pray that we would stand firm on what you have said and your decrees and the wisdom on how to manage marriages and our physical relationships that you've given to us in your word. Lord, give us ears to hear and wills to respond to your word accordingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.